Welcome back to another episode of Lessons for Tomorrow. I'm your host, Tim Alanius, VP of Strategic Initiatives at AmericanEagle.com. Lessons for Tomorrow is the motivational poster in your ear. Today, we are joined by Jason Nias, Senior Vice President of Sales and Partnerships. He started at Digital River in 2000 and has held virtually every role in sales and marketing. He has owned relationships with some of the company's most dynamic and fast-paced clients like MLB.com, Canon, Microsoft, and EA. He's a master at finding dynamic ways to help companies grow their revenue. Jason is responsible for Digital River's go-to-market programs, including demand generation, strategic partnerships, and net new sales. He takes pride in helping clients outpace industry growth by driving innovation and accelerating their global e-commerce sales. Jason, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. It's, uh, it's absolutely a pleasure. Absolutely. Uh, I'm looking forward to our conversation today. And really exciting topic for today with Jason is just talking about thinking big about e-commerce. And so Jason, just kind of give me a little bit of background on just what the landscape is, kind of maybe a little bit more about thinking big with e-commerce, what that means to you and at Digital River. And uh, let's, let's get this conversation started. Let's do it. I just want to start off by saying we are absolutely to be partnering with American Eagle. Uh, you guys are a true leader in the space and to be associated with you and your brand is an honor. So thank you for that. Absolutely. Thank you um, for your partnership as well. As it relates to kind of thinking big related to e-commerce, I think it's probably helpful for me to give a little bit of my, my journey as to how we got here today. I've been a digital owner for 20 plus years. And in that time, I have seen an industry go from industry where it was where most brands thought about selling online direct as uh, something that may never happen. In fact, in the early days of Digital River, uh, we had to, we had two sales. We had to convince companies to sell direct and we had to convince them that we should help them with it. And today the, the landscape is very, very different. In fact, the amount of capital pouring into e-commerce the last few years is staggering. And what it really indicates to me is that we're still in very early innings as it relates to e-commerce. Five years ago, Digital River was a leader in the Magic Quadrant from Forrester and is uh, one of the best e-commerce providers in the planet. And in those five years, I can list out some of the companies we were up in the upper right with. It was companies like Magento, ATG, which is owned by Oracle. CloudCraze is now Salesforce. Demandware, which is now Salesforce. Kibo, which is now Vista. And you see companies like Shopify and BigCommerce going public. So the reason I share all that with you is because the big money in the world is actually betting on e-commerce being still early as it relates to the overall global market. Thanks for that background, Jason. And just as we think about just the space of e-commerce, and as you mentioned, just the, the Magic Quadrant, all those companies that have been acquired over the years in the commerce space, at Digital River, if we had to boil it down, it really falls into kind of four key areas, right? Payments, tax, fraud, and compliance. And I think one of the biggest aspects of just the surge in e-commerce with online purchasing, and especially with the amount of companies that were forced really to use that word into e-commerce in order to survive last year through the pandemic, where are you seeing kind of the biggest immediate need that people recognize it, right? Obviously you have to be able to accept payments or, or collect tax appropriately and have confidence in the way that it's being done because of the complexities of just taxes overall. But fraud and, and the return aspect of online ordering are those the four key overall that you would say that most people are 
focusing on or is there a specific area that is really just since, uh, you know, in the past two years, you have just seen a digital river be the highest demand of overall? Yeah, great question. So, you know, from our perspective, if you take a look at what we're seeing today and, uh, you know, we're taping this in mid-July 2021, there's some there's been some forcing functions in our industry. Uh, COVID being one, which has effectively accelerated the e-commerce strategy and plans of most brands by a couple of years, uh, uh, at, at the least. And, and what that has done is historically brands who've been slower to really embrace direct consumer or even uh, automating some elements of B2B have been forced into the game. Other forcing functions are things like look at your Facebook feed and see how many direct consumer brands are out selling that didn't exist three or four years ago. There are thousands of them, and uh, they're taking share from some traditionally big providers in things like apparel or CPG or even in consumer electronics. You see trends like brands trying to take the wheel back from Amazon. As Amazon gets more and more power, they recognize that brands have to have a direct-to-consumer uh, response opportunity. And then you see big brands looking at the traffic they're getting from international locations, and they're recognizing that their brand actually doesn't have a board. Their brand is attracting people from all over the world, and their ability to keep up with that is where e-commerce comes into the fold. And so, Tim, you referenced Digital River's capabilities. Um, we're effectively the world's largest merchant of record provider. And uh, underneath that is the ability for us to be responsible for all things related to payments, fraud, tax, and compliance. What we're really doing with that offering is allow brands to go direct. It allows them to serve the underserved customers, which may be B2B, maybe an education market, maybe certain countries. It allows them to go global and service customers that historically you've been unable to satisfy or get your products to. Or in some cases, the world has changed so much since when they started e-commerce that they really need to simplify the way that they're meeting those market needs, meaning they, they've got far too many vendors that they have a hard time keeping up with, that rate and pace changes of regulations, new payment types, new market expectations. Brands are, if they've over-engineered it, have a hard time meeting those markets. So one of those three use cases is when Digital River really comes in. Yeah, and, and there's several items from your points there that I want to kind of go deeper in and unpack. And I'm going to start first with just the complication of taxes. And when you talk about that, I mean, in 2020, in the U.S. alone, not taking any other country, there's 11,000, 11,000 tax jurisdictions overall just in the United States. Now, that is in six years, right? Because that was 2020 data. So in 2014, there was only about 10,000. 1,000 new tax jurisdictions were added over a six-year period. And for companies that are starting to branch out into e-commerce where you can reach people pretty much anywhere, and you mentioned this as well, and I want to, I want to talk about that in just a moment, but that cross-border and the international aspect of global e-commerce, overall, just the, the sheer tax jurisdictions in the United States, that's why Digital River and, and thinking big about e-commerce is taxes are complicated, to put it in a statement. And overall, you have to be able to follow those accurately because that is a serious aspect of the financial responsibility of an organization. So Digital River provides tax solution for e-commerce companies. And just overall, I mean, international taxes, I've worked with several clients and international with VAT taxes and others. 
it gets very complicated. So why wouldn't you want to partner with someone who handles a lot of that complication for you and you are able to focus on what you need to do as a business and that's selling your goods or services and providing that out there. So any, I don't know if you have any other thoughts on tax jurisdictions. I just, that, that number staggering to me about just how many, if you are a global brand or even just in the United States, a nationwide brand, what you have to adhere to. Yeah, oh, I love the point. And, and I think he probably made it better than I can. But I think back to a meeting I had maybe 10 years ago with one of the world's largest companies and uh, who, was a, who is and was a customer. And we started talking about all the things that it takes to sell online as it relates to the complex transaction with the consumer. And, you know, payments was obviously complicated. Fraud was complicated. Um, but we kind of stopped on tax and we spent some time talking about it. And the question that this brand asked is, you know, we, we've got a tax department. We, you know, we're a many billion dollar company. We should be able to do this um, without using a company like Digital River. And then they said for a second, but why would, um, you know, our resources are gonna be spent on building great products and marketing those great products. And it's not about building a whole bunch of tax expertise in, Turkey, it's about being able to make sure that the customers in Turkey can get the product if they want. And it's a pretty important distinction around where people deploy their resources. Um, the fact is, um, Digital River is a mega merchant. We process north of $3.3 billion a year last year as the merchant of record for about 5,000 brands globally. And why that matters and why people pick us is because they can't build, they don't have enough scale in country number 10 through 241 to be able to be an expert at all things. So rather than being an expert at Turkish tax laws, you can plug into Digital River and let it become our responsibility. As an example, um, last year, we sell in virtually every country around the world. We had to file over 1,700 VAT, GST, and sales tax filing last year. If you didn't use us, that's what the, the level of tax responsibility you would have to take on yourself. So it's simply a ton of work, but not a ton of strategic value, other than being able to open up the markets, which we can do for you. Absolutely. And, and I think just hitting on that last point there, opening up the markets available to you is where I want to kind of unpack next is going into cross-border strategies. And I know that you have had several articles and resources posted on the Digital River website about this. And just with the move of a lot of companies, and the trend was starting to happen prior to the pandemic, but I think the pandemic escalated it and we're starting to see more brands adopt a faster pace to doing this, but direct to consumer. And we're seeing a lot of uh, companies just start to say, hey, you know what? we really are going to shift to DTC because the opportunities there, the audience is there. I mean, millennials alone are looking to buy online versus in store. 67% of millennials prefer that, that online commerce transaction. And we're starting to see just the ease that people are wanting to just, let me just order it when I remember to order it. I did that just the other day. I said to myself, oh, my gosh, my uh, windshield wiper fluid is out on my car. I kind of let the warning light go for a while. And finally, I said, you know, what? I just got to buy it. And I just 
Quick did a one-time transaction on Amazon to order windshield washer fluid. And it was just in that moment where I could know that I just, I don't have to add it to a list. I don't have to wait and order it with a whole bunch of other stuff. Let me, let me just purchase it. But as we look at this direct-to-consumer uh, and, and cross-border strategy, it really opens the doors for a reach that companies may not have considered before or where they have audience that now just lives in a different locale. So when we look at cross-border and we look at the, the aspect of just e-commerce sales and the opportunity that those are going to continue to grow, estimation is that by the end of 2022, e-commerce sales through cross-border will reach around $627 billion. So that's up from $248 billion in 2017, and that's about 20% of total e-commerce sales. So overall, there's this opportunity for so much more reach, and there's ways that now you have to adapt to new payment processing or new uh, alternative payment methods that might be accepted in one country, but not in another. And then, of course, we already talked through the taxes side of it, but fraud is introduced to a whole new level. So what are some ways that and you think about cross-border strategy or, or highlight areas that, that you would encourage someone to focus on if they're considering a cross-border initiative over the next year? Yeah, it's a it's a very deep topic. We could probably spend the whole podcast talking about cross border. Um, but I love some of the things you said earlier on. You know, you take a look at companies like H and M and Gap. They're actually closing a bunch of high street stores throughout Europe because they're going to focus more on e-commerce. And so, what does that mean? That means that what used to be a couple of miles away, where you could drive over and, and get your H and M or your Gap products. Now I'm going to turn into cross-border transactions where you have to order a product in Europe from another place in Europe and it has to get to you. So that was kind of point one. Point two, and why cross-border really became a first-class citizen this year is Brexit. Mm -hmm. For the first time in a very long time, a top five e-commerce market, which is the UK, became a cross-border transaction for most of the world. As an example, brands who were selling in Europe were being able to passport their products into the UK and uh, sell locally in the UK. Well, with Brexit, you now have to have a UK entity. You've now got to put your inventory in the UK. Uh, you have to have local acquiring in the UK. And that, all of those things I just described, if you don't do them, have implications on a consumer experience. They absolutely do. And I think that's a good just point of exclamation point surrounding it is Brexit, right? Because there are changes that come that are you know known about. They might get delayed. They might get accelerated with changes in how commerce happens or how taxes are are done. I think of data privacy right now, and I'm, I'm going to shift topics briefly here because e-commerce is so centered around data privacy and the amount of changes just in the U.S. right now, and even with GDPR with amendments and revisions that are coming, that you have to be on top of these things, but by finding a solid partner to help guide you who specialize in that area is what actually will let you drive forward. As I mentioned before, just focusing on your business and what you need to do and letting another organization who is the expert guide you along the right path. And when we look at the just cross-border aspect, I think of just the, the opportunities, right, where we have so many people shopping through multiple channels now. 
right? So it could be social. It could be still through standard email newsletters that go out and, and people are driven through if you're a B2C company and even B2B companies. But overall, when we look at that cross-border just commerce aspect, when we see the amount of just people who are willing to make a purchase, how many really understand where they are purchasing from? And I think this is something that just comes into the trustable content and, and messaging that you put out as an organization that what you say on your site or about your products or the story of how it arrives to you, some do it very well and others who maybe aren't as uh, credible will make it seem like they're either US based or others. I have maybe had an experience like this where I'm purchasing and the process for a return or a credit is extremely difficult because they did a great job marketing it, but then the reality of where they were based in a foreign country, it still got to me. It got to me relatively within the time frame that I would say is acceptable, but then none of it fit. None of it was accurate. And I try to return it and I feel like I'm dealing with a one person shop. And so when you look at the opportunity with a lot of the large organizations that you work with, what are people really finding as the true issues? Is it in the, you know, fraud area? Is it in the alternative payments and, and the, that people want to accept it, but maybe they're a little gun shy of it because they're looking at it as an alternative payment uh, may not be a secure way to collect those funds. What could you give as a, advice to someone who's saying, okay, you know, what, what are you commonly answering questions about that might help someone along their path right now? You hit on a whole bunch of them, and I, and I think it was a, your personal experience is, is actually really, really insightful on some of the problems with being good at cross-border. Let me first create a little bit of a comparison of the difference between cross-border and onshore. There are, I guess I'll call it maybe three things that make it different. Where is the inventory if it is in-country, mm -hmm. or is it shipped from one country into another? Where is the, the payment processing? Is it, are you doing local acquiring or are you doing cross-border payment? And then where is the entity? Are you doing business with a business that has business infrastructure? Think about tax filings or tax registrations mm -hmm. and things like that in the region, or are you doing it with a company who is selling out of the United States? Those would be the three kind of things to, first of all, think about. And um, the fact is, if you are selling cross-border, you are giving a worse customer experience than if you are selling onshore. It doesn't mean you shouldn't do it. It just means you have to think about a few things different. As an example, things that are really important in cross-border. Number one, landed costs or guaranteed landed costs. This is, um, if you order from a site and it says, hey, listen, this $100 item is gonna cost you another 40 to get it through customs, to get it shipped to your house, duties paid, everything. That even though it costs significantly more to get the product, it's a better experience because you're setting expectations for that customer. The second aspect you should think about is related to local acquiring. If, if you are doing a cross-border transaction, uh, you should try and get the most local payment types you possibly can for that customer. And you should work with the right either payment provider or merchant of record provider who can get you the most local payments you possibly can get. Um, the reason you want to do that is you want to avoid the concept of the foreign transaction fee showing up on your credit card. You, know, you do a transaction with what you think is a, an Australian company, and then you see 
you know, $1.32 show up randomly on your credit card. Bad experience. And then the third is going to be around how you deal with returns. So if you, your customer, depending on the vertical, has very high expectations of, of the returnability of the product they're buying. So making sure that you have cost, local requiring, and returns are the things that most likely impact the consumer. There are other aspects that affect the business related to things like fraud and tax, which we obviously handle and compliance with things like GDPR. Uh, but in terms of the customer facing ones, I, I think I hit the big three. Absolutely. And I think just to put a couple numbers in everyone's ears, U.S. is the most fraud prone country with about 34% of consumers saying that they were most likely to have been victims of fraud. Then it's the U.K. at 33%, Canada 29 Germany, 27%, and Austria, 21%. Now, these are stats from back in 2018 from PaySafeCard. And overall, when you look at just the sheer amount, and I just want to drop one more number on here. So globally, global payment fraud has tripled uh, from $9.84 billion in 2011 to $32 billion in 2020. And it is projected that by 2027, we're going to be 25% higher at around $40 billion in global payment fraud. I think this is why just the growth of this, because of the sheer volume of people going into online sales and online store setups for uh, businesses and organizations, that this is a it, it was a reality back in 2011, 10 years ago. And it's just going to continue to be a concern moving forward. So having the right solution in place to help with that aspect of fraud is so critical for you as a business, considering to either increase your e-commerce uh, capabilities, whether that's cross-border or going into the e-commerce space, as we're seeing so many more people and organizations desiring to be in that online space. It's just a reality of what's going to happen. Yeah. Um, you know, one of the, the implication to a brand um, some people think about fraud just as lost product. And yeah, that's that's a that's a problem. But if if you are going at it on your own and, and you get attacked from in a certain region and you are flat-footed, what happens is you start to get penalties and fines by the payments company. And uh, those penalties and fines are no joke. In fact, they can fine you millions of dollars and they can shut you off. Mm -hmm. So Fraud, although the product loss is a really big deal, there are other ramifications to doing fraud poorly. It's almost like if someone sees a, a crack, it gets out on the web and people all kind of gravitate towards that crack and it becomes a big problem immediately. So it's one of those problems where it's not a problem until it's a problem and then it's a huge problem. Absolutely. Now let's let's shift gears a bit. Let's let's start talking about a little bit of the alternative payment methods and, and specifically I want to really talk about Buy now, pay later. BNPL for the acronym out there because everyone had fun with acronyms. Uh, we we know that there's an entire global aspect to buy now, pay later. It's being implemented at a much higher pace than previously, even though those services have been out there before. Tell me a little bit about just your experiences and and just opportunities with buy now, pay later, and and where you see it going in the future. It's no secret buy now, pay later is having a moment. You know, we partner with a, a number of buy now, pay later companies, and they are all telling a really, really compelling story. Um, I did a podcast uh, with Kevin from Florida, and he gave me a little glimpse into the pitch, which is they walk into brands and say, listen, 
we have 30 million people who've used our service in the last month. And when they visit websites, they are looking for is Klarna available at checkout. And they have data to prove that if it's not, people walk away and go somewhere else and buy another. So it's almost becoming the new Visa, MasterCard, American Express logo at checkout, where people are looking for their preferred buy now, pay later option. The biggest player in our network is Klarna, although I will say uh, a really, really interesting company that people should take a look at is TreviPay. And TreviPay is a buy now, pay later, but it's targeted at businesses. So it's the same type of utility you get from a Sezzle or an Arm or an Afterpay, but it's for businesses and extending lines of credit. So that would be uh, this buy now, pay later phenomenon is kind of trying to serve all customers. In the buy now, pay later, I just look at the audiences for that. And I, I've started really in the past year and a half or so getting into just the the generational differences between audiences in the digital space. And I, I feel that buy now, pay later was the more early adopters was the younger millennials, right? They They demanded choice and are more careful about using traditional credit cards that uh, the the older generations, uh, the baby boomers, the Gen Xers, uh, we're, we're more comfortable with using. And those are also the ones who are a bit more, those two generations are a bit more uh, skeptical of some of the other opportunities with alternative payment options. And so when we look at the aspect of buy now, pay later, I'm starting to see, and, and, and maybe you've seen it too, that the younger generations spearheaded it. But now that, especially with COVID and the pandemic and where people started to become more conservative about their finances. They got a little bit more comfortable with the idea of, let me have that option to kind of have these payments over time. People who were unfortunate and had layoffs or furloughed had the opportunity to still make purchases for things that they may need, but pay it in a more scheduled and known opportunity for over time versus an all upfront cost and increasing their personal debt. So is this something that you're starting to see where because of both COVID and, and the pandemic, but also the acceptance of more payment options as either older generations are being educated or as they maybe are just now exposed to it long enough that it's it's an area of growth because these generations are starting to not be as divided about the opportunity. It's an excellent question. I think I'm going to answer it a little bit different than you might expect. You know, you got to kind of peel the onion as to the, the psychological impact on what these products, why, why people use them. And um, if there's, a, there's a report out there, um, which I enjoy. I think it's by Insider Intelligence. And they ask the question, why do people use buy now, pay later? And the number one reason, it was like 40% of the response said to avoid paying credit cards. Mm. So it had it had nothing to do with their credit worthiness. They just saw this as a hack to not pay that whatever their rate on their credit card is. They still know they owe it. They're still going to pay for it. They just want to have a little bit more time before they pay it back without having to pay the interest. So it's just scratching a niche the credit card companies haven't been uh, historically providing. Another mm. real big reason is because it effectively becomes a one-click checkout on virtually any merchant's site. If you go to the site and your Klarna or your Afterpay is available, it becomes a wallet that allows you to simply check out. It's almost like the Amazon experience on any brand. Mm -hmm. So to me, it's a little bit of the, they innovated in a place where credit cards weren't and they're offering utility that they have. Now, the credit card companies will catch up. I mean, you saw 
recently Apple announced they're getting into the game. I think it's with uh, Goldman. Mm-hmm. They're going to offer uh, the ability to do buy now, pay later through Apple Pay. And so I still think we're at relatively early innings in this as well. Um, as more and more consumers of any shape and size get on board with the convenience and the ability to delay your credit card interest and effectively giving you a, a another shield between you and, and risk and fraud. Mm-hmm. So long-winded answer, but, but I think they're here to stay. Um, we're seeing enormous adoption on all the brands we work with that take them, and uh, they're asking us for more. And the, the further you go from kind of mainstream, westernized culture, the offerings are very similar, but the names change. It's not mm-hmm. Cezzle, Affirm, Afterpay, and Klarna. It's a whole bunch of companies like Payflex and Hum and OpenPay. The need is the same. How that need is getting met geographically is very, very different. And I would just say from a personal experience, again, I always love adding these into to the show. I'm a self-proclaimed Apple fanboy, as listeners know, but overall, the the Apple Card experience was incredible, right? And just the fact that I can do the majority of all my transactions through the Apple Card, through my phone, or my watch really changed the game for not carrying multiple credit cards or using ones and trying to think about specific advantages that you get from them. It was the the ease of just having that digital payment method. But overall, I think my first experience with a buy now, pay later was with a firm. And, uh, and you know, I'll get a little personal here, but we were buying new mattresses for the house. I've got four boys and we were redoing rooms and we were just like, you know what, let's just go all in. Why not? Casper loved me that that month. And I looked at the options and I looked at what a firm was offering. I go, why wouldn't I use buy now, pay later? To your point, it was more of the, well, hey, it's 0% and I can just go forward with my payments and I can just get all of these right now and it fit for my need and my budget. And it was so seamless. It was almost ridiculous. It was too easy. Like you said, that Amazon ease of use with these buy now, pay later solutions is incredible for the consumer. Let's talk about ease of use or any challenges from the merchant perspective, though, for a moment. And, you know, is there a point where there's a certain threshold of either, um, you know, cost per transaction or uh, the margin on your product is big enough to withstand any BNPL uh, implementation and and cost of offering that uh, financing solution? Well, that's a great question. Yeah, it's uh, it's 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 so it's such a good deal for the customer, which means someone's left holding the bag, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so these solutions can be somewhat pricey. It kind of depends on which one. It also each one has their own uh, risk assessment as to which orders they're going to allow to go through and which ones they're not. And so you have to deal with that consumer experience implication, meaning if they have a high rate of declines, how do you, how does that kind of square with the consumer experience you're trying to deliver. And then the third is element you've got to think about is collection. Ultimately, some portion of the transactions that you guys sign up on your website aren't going to get paid for. And, uh, you know, companies like Klarna and Affirm and others have to chase those monies. And what is that experience for your customer? So there's a lot to think about. Affordability, consumer experience, breakage, all those kinds of things that really need to kind of get weighed in uh, as you decide which buy now, pay later provider you're going to work with. A little bit more on buy now, pay later. So we look at those challenges, right? We we, we address those. We get through it. An organization wants to add buy now, pay later. And I'm, I'm going to pull from an article from 
Eric Christensen at Digital River that was uh, put up about just buy now, pay later overall. And the opportunity, right, the benefit of it is that we have seen and Digital River has seen with customers that brands in the UK and Europe saw 3% to 10% lift in gross revenue after adding a BNPL option. The other benefit though, right? So that's that's gross revenue. That's that's an awesome benefit aspect. But I think another one that's really key here is that that was stated was that the potential increase in average order value in your AOV. And it is a great selling point for the opportunity of offering pay over time messaging where upwards of 56% increase has been seen in AOV because of pay over time messaging. So if you're considering it as an organization, definitely encourage you to look into the benefits and see if it's the right fit for both your products and your organization, but also for your audience. And we've worked with several clients who have started to add BNPL, and some of them have done a little bit more of a test bed of certain aspects where not every single product has that option, but key products where that margin can be met will come through. So I don't know if you have any other key benefits or you know, challenges that have been overcome with BNPL that you want to highlight here, but just want to kind of point that out that it is the benefits can definitely really impact your organization. Yeah, I love the point. Um, I'll add to it. So, you know, when you see two things happen to your business, um, an increase, uh, an improvement in close conversion rate or close ratio and an increase in average order value, think about the other implications that has your business. Um, specifically around the money you spend to drive demand. You're effectively improving the, uh, the bang for your buck you're getting on your media spend and, your, and uh, other, other, other investments, thus making your ability to spend more. You know, it's like this flywheel that there are very few things that you can immediately improve your close ratio and increase your average order value. The one thing you can for sure do is add more countries the second thing you for sure do is add more payment types to make you more relevant. Those are kind of the part and parcel on how you make your demand generation and other things more efficient. You're effectively adding scale. Absolutely. For me, the brands that, that I've seen have the most success are the ones who really know how to focus on the things that move their needle for their company. And as I said before, it's, it's really building great products, figuring out how to market, position, and sell those great products. And anything that's not those, you should find ways to work with other companies to do it. And so in the case of Digital River, it's all that, those complexities related to the, the transactions, so payments, fraud, tax, and compliance. And as it relates to standing up your e-commerce and deploying new payment types and doing all the things that American Equal can help you with, you lean on a company like that. So uh, this is really about uh, doing what you're best at and letting other people do what they're best. That's, that's the most progressive company seeing the best growth are the ones that are doing Wonderful. Jason, I appreciate the conversation we've had today so much. Again, we thank everyone for listening. Feel free to rate and review us in whatever podcast app of choice that you choose to listen to us on. We would really appreciate that. Share us with others as well so that they can be informed about just all sorts of different conversations for our lessons for tomorrow. Jason, thank you so much. Everyone have a great day.